Let us pray. Father, we thank you for those saints whom we at least sometimes try to follow as we run the race that is set before us. Let your Holy Spirit be with us now as we focus on your word, and let my words be your words, always, all to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Blessed are those who listen carefully to this sermon, for they shall understand what our Lord expects of us. What? <laughs> who said that? Was that one of the Beatitudes that I missed? No. But it was a good introduction, I think, to those very, very special statements of our Lord called the Beatitudes. You know, part of the Sermon on the Mount. What an opportunity. As I was pondering what to say today, I realized that the amount of material in the Beatitudes could give you enough material for months and months of preaching. This is the section of Scripture and the parallel passage in Luke, the Sermon on the Plain, which is similar but in some ways different, different offer numerous potential texts upon which one might preach. In fact, I really think you could have a series on each of the Beatitudes. But today I've decided to focus on four things. Not the usual three, but four. Just what are the Beatitudes? Why are we attracted to them? How should we understand something like, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth? And, number four, how should we incorporate the statements presented in the Beatitudes into our daily lives? In pondering what they represent, I hasten to say that they and the sermon of which they are part are not a sermon in the traditional sense of what we hear on a Sunday morning here or in any other Christian church. By that, I mean it is not a focused presentation on a topic of Scripture or the like. There, the sermon presenter is attempting to focus, as I say, on a, on a section of Scripture to elucidate the passage and to show how its contents may be applied today. I do not think that we should think of the Sermon on the Mount as a single sit-down where so much information was provided. Somehow, as one reflects on the sermon and tries to visualize Jesus actually sitting down on a hill or on a piece of flat land and delivering this message in one fell swoop, it just seems too pithy. And this then suggests that it is indeed not a single sermon, but a compilation of many different sermons. William Barclay, the pesky Presbyterian about, you've heard me speak before, whom I've referenced and sometimes quoted, describes the sermons as, and I love this, the ordination address to the disciples. It's the concentrated memory of many hours of teachings distilled down to nuggets. Please pardon the mixed metaphor there. It would seem that the Beatitudes are trying to speak of the joy that seeks us through our pain. And let's face it, we all have plenty of pain in this life. This joy then shines through our pain and lifts our heavy loads, giving us hope to carry on when we seem overwhelmed by circumstances. Well then, just what is the attraction of these statements? 
many have preached on them over the years. And even folks who may know very little about Scripture are well aware of the arguably paradoxical ideas presented here. I believe this is because in these oft-repeated words, we recognize just how far we all are away from the ideals that are being put forth. And this draws us. Why? Because as fallen creatures in a fallen cosmos, we are seeking redemption. We really want to clean up our act. Let's face it. Despite our chronic sinfulness, we want to go to heaven and to spend eternity there. We want to feel the release and the relief from our sin that only our incarnate God can give us. You've heard God call the hound of heaven, I'm sure. And if you try to visualize that, you might be able to see that we're being chased constantly by him, like the harrier chasing the hare as he tries to attract us to him. The harrier never gives up until he is exhausted to the point of collapse. Our God is much like that, but God doesn't give up and doesn't collapse. As St. Augustine said, Thou hast created us for thyself, talking about God, of course, and our heart cannot be quieted until we find our rest in thee. Thou hast created us for thyself, and our heart cannot be quieted until we find our rest in thee. So, God loves us. He wants us, and we want him, and we love him back. We may not wish to or be able to admit it at times, but our desire for God, I am convinced, is in our DNA. C.S. Lewis has spoken about this, and I'd refer you all to his book, The Problem of Pain. I'm sure, I see Karen smiling over there. I'm sure many of you know of this book. It's quite popular. It's beautifully written. And I'm not going to talk about the whole thing at all, but he talks in it at the beginning, especially of the, the idea of the numinous, the numinous, which is that mysterious sense we as humans have of the spirit out there, wherever. Someone has said it's like that feeling of homesickness for a place we have never been. And I kind of can feel that in my gut when I do feel it. I think you know what I mean. Just as we are aware of this somewhere else and of the God of the universe, we desire to be there with God. But internally, we also know that our access to God and to salvation is somehow connected with our behavior here on earth. The Beatitudes reveal to us in poetic form ideals that would allow access for us to God. Let's remember that the beloved disciple, John, tells us in his first letter, after saying that all of us sin and if we don't think we sin, we're lying, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So then, we do indeed know that there's still hope for our sinful souls. Many years ago, I read a book by a sometime Anglican named A.N. Wilson. This is show and tell today. Um, A.N. Wilson. He's a Brit. This, I think this was written in 85. It's old, but it's another gem. Um, the premise that Wilson pushes that we can know Jesus and know for sure who he is, what he, that he, who he said he was, by what he said. And I'm not going to tell you more because I want you all to read this sometime. But as one might expect, he speaks a lot about the Beatitudes because those are amazing things that Jesus said. In early pages, he comments on the, quote, brutal paradoxes of the Beatitudes, close quote, and how, quote, how inimical they are to contemporary moral values, close quote. He calls them the high counsels of perfection. Now, Wilson, interestingly enough, had written, prior to this book, an acclaimed biography of Leo Tolstoy. And he recalls Tolstoy's, Tolstoy saying, if you wish to be a Christian, you must fulfill these commands. Now, admittedly, they're not commands. Rather, they're statements of promise and reassurance with implicit commands in them. And so, we cannot help but be attracted to them. They are the highest of ideals. But we want that. As depraved as we may become, we want that. How do we handle statements like, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth? Such offerings seem to fly in the face of reality for us. It seems to us that the meek are always getting the short end of the stick. But as is often the case with scripture, we need the help of those who have studied the biblical languages in great depth. In this particular case, the problem is in the meaning of the word meek. Meek to us, at least to me, implies a milk toast. Someone who never speak up or stand up for what he or she believes. But in Aristotelian language, meek implies a halfway point between being excessively angry and showing excessive angerlessness. I'm not sure there's such a word. This then would make our beatitude, blessed be the one who is properly angry at the right time. Some difference between meek. Also, there's the connotation to the word meek of having every passion under control at all times. And when I say under control, I mean the person who was under the control of God. That person, that person, can pause before an outburst, send a little message to heaven, and get an answer from the Holy Spirit as to how to behave and how to speak in a specific situation. This has stood this boy in such good stead for, well, at least in seminary. Impulsive surgeon that I was, Warren's smiling now, uh, Father Warren, excuse me, Father Warren. <laughs> I knew him before he was a father. Um, I was terribly impulsive, and yet in seminary, Martha Gilton, whom is known to many of you, um, one of my professors, 
got me to focus on before you open your big mouth, just stand still, look back, send a dot to heaven, and the Holy Spirit will help you. And indeed, it works. <laughs> indeed, I think meek is not as we see it then. It's an admirable trait. There's no time for me to analyze other Beatitudes. There's ample material online for this, for you folks. This may be helpful for you should you wish to pursue it. There's a huge collection of sermons on this, and I'd recommend that you just kind of, you know, look around the Internet and you'll see amazing things. I would say that Jesus would have every Christian manifest every one of these characteristics. Jesus was not just asking men to change a few of their behaviors. He was asking them to change radically their entire lives and their world view. So one would be very wise to spend considerable time studying his words in the Beatitudes. As today is the Sunday upon which we celebrate All Saints Day, where we think about ex those extraordinary folks who through the ages have demonstrated incredible Christ-like behavior, I would like to believe that those saints that Hebrews 12 calls the great cloud of witnesses, don't you love that? Incorporated the prescriptions of the Beatitudes into their behavior. As someone has said, to be part of the kingdom, we must believe, we must belong, and we must behave. And I think that is what the saints have done. They've been attracted to the Beatitudes and lived them just as Jesus would have it. And so, if there's a message for us here, it is to live as if the Beatitudes were also part of our DNA. I do hope these thoughts have given you some perspective as you think about these extremely important words of our Lord. But, on a practical level, what do we do with them in our daily lives? Well, if we believe that they may be one key to behavior that may indeed have something to do with our sanctification and our trajectory toward Christ-likeness, the answer to that question is easy. We study them to get a clear idea of just what they mean. And then we try on a day-to-day -day basis to incorporate these counsels of perfection into our behavior. Is this easy? Of course not. But all we can do is try, and we can recognize that God does indeed know our hearts. And we also know that when we fail, we can always start over again. This boy has done that many times. Recognizing that yesterday's behavior is just that. From all that I know about the saints about whom we read, not one lived an entirely perfect existence. Most had dramatic ups and downs, and many ended up being martyred. But again, let me emphasize the word trajectory for them. In the long term, they were following ever upward and more Christ-like behavior. Remember the closing line of that great hymn. Monica's going to smile now. The saints of God. The saints of God are just folk like me. And...
please say with me, I mean to be one too. Amen.